0: How's everyone doing? Welcome in. You're more than welcome in today. It's 5.07 p.m. Pacific time on the West Coast in rainy Southern California. We've had a series of heavy rainstorms. Kwanzaa, the first day of Kwanzaa, Umoja. Day one of Kwanzaa, 2027, 2021, December 27th, 2021. We began today with some information from the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University.edu online. This is the description of how it originated the King Institute quote in 2005 with an initial $1 million endowment pledged from Hall of Fame football star Ronnie Lott, L-O-T-T, Ronnie R-O-N-N-I-E. $1 million endowment pledge from Hall of Fame football star Ronnie Lott and his all-stars helping kids organization Dr. Claiborne C-L-A-Y B-O-R-N-E Carson C A R S O N founded the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute to provide a permanent financial base for the King Papers Project and a broad range of other educational activities. The Institute also received a substantial endowment gift from the Mumford Family slash Agape Foundation. Mumford, M-U-M-F-O-R-D. Mumford Family, Agape, A-G-A-P-E Agape Foundation. It is seeking additional endowment support to ensure that its efforts to disseminate King's visionary ideals will continue in perpetuity. The King Institute's current programs include completion of the definitive multi-volume edition of the Papers of Martin Luther King, Jr., publication of other books intended for general and scholarly audiences, the Liberation Curriculum Educational Initiative, which introduces curriculum materials and lesson plans, as well as conducts teacher development workshops, encouraging the use of the papers projects, online documentary materials, scholar slash writer in residence program for invited experts who can benefit from access to the Institute's unique research resources. And contribute to public understanding of King's historical significance. King conferences and symposium as well as other public events designed to enhance understanding of King's life, ideas and legacy. our promotional brochure for more information there's two links you can click on promotional brochure low resolution the other one is high-res there's no date on here Obviously, it goes back a while, I think this started in, it said 2005. And they give um, phone numbers contact numbers Cypress Hall D like David Cypress Hall D 466 VIA VIA Ortega O-R-T-E-G-A Stanford California Nine four three zero five dash four one four six the Cypress Hall D four six six Via Ortega Stanford, California nine four three zero five dash four one four six to make a gift or contribution. Phone number six five zero seven two three two zero nine two. Fax six five zero seven two three two zero nine three. Again, the phone number six five zero. Seven two three two zero nine two in the facts six five zero seven two three two zero nine three. You can contact them That's King Institute at Stanford. EDU as King Institute. In this symbol at stanford.edu. The Institute cannot give permission to use or reproduce any of the writing statements or images of Martin Luther King, Jr. Please contact Intellectual Properties Management IPM the exclusive licensor of the estate of Martin Luther King Jr. Inc at licensing the ad symbol I hyphen or dash P dash M dot com Four. Four zero four. Five two six. Eight nine. Licensing L I C E N S I N G. The at sign. The letter I dash p dash m dot com or call four zero four five two six eight nine six eight how's everybody feeling you're very welcome back again on the search for more information on the website, the Dr. Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute at Stanford University.edu, there's a link. Has an article that describes a podcast World House Podcast Episode 21 Last Speech. Dr. King's Last Speech. Podcasted January 27th, 2021. On April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered what would become his final speech I've been to the mountaintop. He spoke to the crowd gathered at the Charles Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King came to Memphis to support the sanitation workers strike he believed the struggle in Memphis exposed the nationwide need for social and economic justice that he was planning to highlight later that summer, during the Poor People's Campaign. The next day on April 4th, 1968, while preparing to go out to dinner, Dr. King stepped outside the Lorraine Motel Room 3 Zero six to speak with Southern Christian Leadership Conference SCLC colleagues standing in the parking area below Excuse me while standing on the balcony outside his second floor room <clears throat> Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. James Earl Ray, a 40 year old escaped fugitive, fired a single shot that killed King. Listen to the final episode of this season where Dr. Carson discusses King's last. Speech, his sudden death, and the unanswered question King left us with where do we go from here? We're listening to the last episode of the World House. Podcast episode 21. Just to clarify, it's not the last episode of this podcast. We'll go on as long as we can. Now we'll listen to the episode 21.
1: We have inherited a big house, a great world house, in which we have to live together. Black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live without each other, must learn somehow in this. One big world house
2: to live with each other. Welcome to the World House, a podcast inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of a just and peaceful world. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute here at Stanford.
3: And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, Director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. On April 3rd, 1968, just one day before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the famous I have been to the mountaintop speech. I would argue that next to the I have a dream speech, this is probably the second most famous speech, mostly because it sounds very much like a review of King's life and also a prophecy about the end of it. Clay, Let's talk about the context and the content of the speech before we move on to its significance.
2: Well, I think we need to mention first of all, he comes to Memphis in order to help the sanitation workers protest uh, against the, their low wages. They're on strike. He came in, in March of 1968 and gave a, a speech that was very encouraging to them, and they wanted him back. Um, there's a lot of resonance uh, about his relationship with James Lawson, who was also one of the uh, ministers in Memphis uh, supporting the sanitation worker strikes. And Lawson had been one of his first advisors about uh, nonviolence, because Lawson had spent time in India, came back in the 1950s, and was a a significant advisor uh, not only to Martin Luther King, but to many of the students who led the Freedom Rides of 1961 uh, so and, and the sit-ins of 1960. So I, I think that one of the reasons why he comes is that he sees this as uh, an important event, certainly for the Poor People's Campaign. The sanitation workers were poor. They were struggling to gain recognition and, and better wages. But I think also because uh, they represented one of the ways in which he felt that the civil rights gains of the mid-1960s had left out the poor people and uh, he needed to identify with the strike and he felt that this was a a way of of building uh, his broader Poor People's Campaign, which would culminate uh, during the summer of 1968 uh, in a planned uh, occupation, I guess, of the National Mall until Congress and the nation decided to do something about the issue of poverty. So King came there because he he felt that this was uh, something that he couldn't avoid. He used the metaphor of the good Samaritan story and uh, which takes place on Jericho Road going to Jerusalem. And it's a story about the importance of stopping to help the wounded stranger um, who is left beside the road probably after being robbed, and the person who stops and helps the person who needs aid make sure that he's taken care of. And so for King, uh, going to Memphis was kind of like helping the person in need. Uh, He has a lot of resistance from his own staff about whether this detracts from the Poor People's Campaign, but he says it's part of the Poor People's Campaign. If I don't stop in, in Memphis, then what does it mean to say that we are trying to to help those who are poor and those who need uh, assistance. So he comes and once he’s there, he finds that he’s kind of stuck there because uh, in late March there's a, a march. there’s violence associated with it. He knows that if he doesn’t come back and prove that there could be a nonviolent march in Memphis, um, then people would begin to question, you can't uh, have a nonviolent campaign in Memphis. how are you going to bring lots of poor people to Washington and have this nonviolent occupation of the National Mall? So he feels that he has to prove something by coming back to have another march, and that's what he's looking for when he comes to Memphis. Uh, Now, with respect to the speech itself, he did not intend to uh, speak there. He was not feeling well. It was a very uh, stormy night. He wanted to just get some rest that evening. But when his colleagues get to uh, Mason Temple, they find that it is crowded with very enthusiastic sanitation workers who want to hear from Martin Luther King. And they call him at the hotel and say, you've got to come. They're they're looking for you. They're not waiting to hear us. And so he comes and gives this impromptu speech, which, as you said, is one of his great speeches. I compare it to the speech he gave in Montgomery. December 5th, 1955, on the first night of the boycott, and in both cases, in in the Montgomery speech and in the Memphis speech, what he's trying to do is assure the people, this enthusiastic crowd on on both occasions, that what they are doing is of world historical significance, he says, in Montgomery, in the history books of the future, they will have to say there lived a great people in Montgomery who had the courage to stand up for their rights and in Memphis, again, he's, he's telling them by doing this historical overview of all the different periods of history where he might have lived, he says, yes, of all these historical periods, I would want to be here because what's going on here is, is part of this world struggle that's going on in many places. He mentions Africa and other places where there, people are struggling for their rights. So he's telling them that there's no place I'd rather be than with you tonight. And that has to be encouraging to for these sanitation workers to hear. So I think that the speech is definitely one of his great ones. There's so much in it. And, uh, and I think that um, you get a sense that he's looking at his own life and trying to place that in historical context.
3: So you mentioned that in both speeches, the first one and the last one, he compares the local struggle to the larger context of the universal human struggle for equality and dignity. Are you saying that there is this continuity between the first and the last speech? And if so, is there anything that has changed in those 12 years that passed in between?
2: Well, I think that one of the continuities is that King is always conscious of where the events unfolding around him fit into a larger historical context. That's what makes his speeches uh, resonate. We can read them now, and we can still see what he's getting at in terms of the importance of the African-American freedom struggle in this broad historical context of struggles for freedom around the world, Um, the human rights struggles that are taking place, and are still taking place. So he wants to remind people of that. And that's what makes his speeches timeless, because we're always concerned about, are the things that we are doing to make the world better, are they significant? Will people remember them? And uh, certainly he was right about the Montgomery bus boycotts and the history books. And he was right about the Memphis strike. Now a lot of that significance uh, comes from the fact that that's where King was assassinated. But I think even without that, he was bringing attention uh, to what was going on in Memphis as a way of bringing attention to the issue of poverty. You know, his last book, "Where Do We Go from Here?" You know, we still haven't answered that question because we haven't really looked at him as not simply a civil rights leader, but someone who was trying to bring about historic changes on issues of race relations, poverty, and, of course, war.
3: And I would like to play that excerpt where King speaks specifically about these issues.
1: Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half. Of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men, for years Now, no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. Also in the human rights revolution, getting done and done in a hurry, to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this What is unfolding, and I'm happy that he's allowed
2: me to be in Memphis. So I think that this is very characteristic of, of King that he's uh, got a broad vision. That's why I would consider him a visionary, and uh, and he's always reminding us that he's more than simply a civil rights leader. He does that speech against the Vietnam War. He answers those critics who are saying, why are you as a minister speaking out against the war? And he said, you haven't really known me. If you had known me as the minister, you you would know that this was part of my sense of what needs to be changed in the world. And it always had been there. Um, but sometimes people didn't notice it. And, and I think that that's uh, true even today. When we look back at Martin Luther King, the typical description of him as a civil rights leader, we think of him at the March on Washington. We think of him as gaining passage of civil rights legislation. But we forget that uh, perhaps the, the most meaningful part of his life came after that. He wasn't the organizer of the March on Washington. Many people were trying to achieve civil rights gains. But what was important is even after the passage of that legislation, he didn't retire Many things stepped up the intensity of what he was doing, and uh, went to Chicago. Ultimately, launched the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which in turn brought him to Memphis.
3: So, Clay, what happens after he delivers that speech?
2: He uh, goes back uh, to the Lorraine Hotel next day. Of course, as he was preparing to go out for dinner, he walks out on the balcony, and he's assassinated. So, his life comes to a sudden end, and I, I think this leads people to you know, read meanings into the Memphis speech. Was he aware that he might die? I don't think he had an immediate awareness, even though he was aware of all the threats against his life. I think it, in some ways, though, he always knew that the danger of being a civil rights leader, he had come close to assassination way back in the 1950s. He had been physically assaulted on several occasions and probably was, uh, well, definitely was aware of the threats against his life because he talked with his parents uh, shortly before going to Memphis about the dangers he he faced and had that conversation with them that he might not survive. So, of course, he's aware, but he not have been aware that it would happen the next day and um and that's uh you know, that's one of the reasons why i think that when we look back at these speeches we shouldn't read too much meaning into that as as forecasting his assassination i, I think he did see it him, himself in the moses role of leading people to the promised land and always understanding that he might not get there himself
3: So if King knew that he was in danger, and I suspect that perhaps his colleagues knew that as well, and his family members also, why didn't he have security around
2: him? Well, I think that's the question that should have been probably directed at the police force and and forces and the places where he went. Um, I don't think they gave enough attention to the need for security around him. Um, He was in a very insecure location in a exposed room in in a hotel uh, where the balcony was uh, in full view of the surrounding um, buildings i i think that there was a sense in the fbi that this was not an important uh, matter for them to protect king to work with local police to protect him instead the fbi used its its agents to try to distort him as a leader, try to disrupt his activities. The same would be true of the military intelligence who came to uh, Memphis, as we later learned. They were uh, right across the street from uh, Martin Luther King when the assassination took place. But they were there to prepare for perhaps a uh, breakout of a uh, disorder in, in, in Memphis as, as they were uh, assigned to other American cities during the period after Watts and after the Detroit Rebellion and the uh, Newark Rebellion of 1967, they were expecting another long, hot summer. Uh, So that's what they were concerned about. They were not concerned about protecting King. So I think that when we look back, it's easy to understand how vulnerable he was. And I'm, I'm not so sure that anything would have protected from all the threats. I mean, after all, this is a decade when a president of the United States is assassinated. Uh, So there's no way of completely protecting it. But I think they could have done a much better job of of focusing their attention on the racists who not only killed Martin Luther King, but killed many other uh, civil rights activists, including the four little girls in Birmingham. So I think that their priorities were simply... Um, misplaced.
3: What do we know about his assassin, James Earl Ray? Well,
2: the first thing I would say is that um, the King family never completely believed that story, and they actually decided that James Earl Ray was not the assassin. Um, I disagreed with that. Um, I think he was, but I think that he was part of a larger plot, and that uh, many other people wanted Martin Luther King dead. I did go to Memphis and testify in the trial that they used as primarily as a means of getting on the record uh, a lot of the conspiracy ideas about uh, King's assassination. Uh, One I was particularly interested in because not because I think that the military intelligence was responsible for his assassination, but I think. American people should know that this emphasis on trying to stamp out black violence led the government to ignore the risk and the danger to Martin Luther King and instead see him as simply a target of surveillance. And I think that the people who were involved in that were never really investigated. So I, I think that the trial was very useful in terms of getting a lot of details about the targeting of martin luther king by the fbi and military intelligence but i, I don't think that they really add to the story of how james Earl Ray, in my view did pull the trigger that uh, killed martin luther king
3: when and how did you hear about his death
2: well f- for me it came soon after uh I think I might have mentioned in a, in a previous podcast that I, I left the United States um, when I was drafted, and with the idea that perhaps not coming back to the United States, I, I left in the fall of 1967, and for a variety of reasons, I um, uh, felt I had to return. My wife was very sick and needed to come back to the United States, and that was right, uh, right before the assassination. So in some ways, learning about the assassination was you know, my first, uh, first major event that happens after my return. So part of my, my feeling at the time was I came back for this. You know, this, is, this is the United States that I'd left. To me, it was uh, quite disturbing. You know, I admired Martin Luther King a great deal. I'd seen him at the March on Washington, and it just seemed like... His death and his assassination was symbolic of what was happening in the country. And uh, right after the assassination, my wife and I came back to Los Angeles, and we were there when um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And so it was—it was a reminder that something important was happening in the world, and it wasn't good. It was—it uh, seemed like the the world was coming apart in some ways. You know, those two disturbing events did not leave me with a lot of hope for America. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I was not alone in those kinds of feelings, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, we know from our previous podcast that the last book that King wrote was Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? So I do want to ask you, You know where did we go from that moment of king's assassination and perhaps more importantly where should we go from here from now from today
2: well as i said i don't think we've made a a great deal of progress since uh, king's assassination i think many of the issues that were current then poverty police brutality uh, racism perpetual war these are issues that king dealt with that haven't been resolved we haven't really come much closer to answering his question, where do we go from here? I don't think we ask ourselves that question enough. And I I think that if he were around, he would be constantly pestering us (laughs) with that. I, I don't think he would be satisfied with the way the world is. I think that's one of the hopeful aspects of what has happened during the period of Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, to me, that's uh, a beginning attempt to try to address some of these these issues that have, were left unresolved after King's death. Uh, I think he would be very proud of the young people who have brought new energy into the struggle for human rights, and social justice. But I think uh, we're still trying to we're heading where do we go from here and I think that that should lead us to look at, more critically at the way King is viewed by by many people as simply some a civil rights leader I think he was much more than that I think that his his vision was much broader than that mm-hmm. since
3: this is the last episode of this series, I do want to ask you, what would you like our listeners to take away from these episodes and from these discussions about King's life and his vision, his legacy?
2: Well, I, you know, the title that I gave to the American prophet, courses is, is seeing him as a prophetic figure, but also understanding his inner life what motivated him, you know, the the religious ideas, uh, the visionary ideas about change. And I think that linking those two, you know, the the ideas that he develops as a young person growing up and going to seminary and and trying to resolve his religious doubts, I think are very closely related to the global vision that emerges during his life. You know, I think that. he understood that throughout history, people have been trying to find a way to build a more just and peaceful world, and it's it's a big challenge, and that's where I think his optimism that the way to address that challenge is through nonviolent activism. You know, To me, he kind of continues Gandhi's legacy, and he left a legacy for us. He's, he's saying there is a way we can... Make the world better, but it's going to take a lot of struggle, and we need to answer this unanswered question. That's our challenge.
3: You listen to Dr. Claiborne Carson and Dr. Mira Foster and the World House. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it. And if you would like to find out more information about this or any other episodes, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website. KingInstitute.stanford.edu.
0: Welcome back. You're most welcome in again. Continuing with the information on the King Institute. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University, online reading, quotes, Martin Luther King Jr. Papers project initiated by the King Center in Atlanta. The Martin Luther King Jr. Papers Project is one of only a few large scale research ventures focusing on an African American. In 1985, King Centers. Founder and President Coretta Scott King invited Stanford University historian Claiborne Carson to become the project director. Mission of the Papers Project as a result of Dr. Carson's selection, the King Papers Project became a cooperative venture of Stanford University, the King Center, and the King Estate. Its principal mission is to publish the definitive 14-volume edition of the Papers of Martin Luther King Jr., a comprehensive collection of King's most significant correspondence, sermons, speeches, published writings, and unpublished manuscripts. These seven already published volumes have become essential reference works for researchers and have influenced scholarship about King and the movements he inspired building upon this research foundation. The project also engages in other related educational activities using internet communications technology to research, to reach a diverse global audience, it has greatly increased popular as well as scholarly awareness of King's achievements and visionary ideas. Funding the Papers Project In addition to core funding from Stanford University, the King Papers Project receives financial support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, and individual donors as a component of Stanford's Martin Luther King, Jr. Research and Education Institute. Correction, Stanford, Martin Luther King, Jr. Research and Education Institute. The project also benefits from the Institute's endowment. And I'll open a parentheses here and say I read it at one point it was a Stanford had a $27 billion with a B, $27 billion endowment continuing National Advisory Board Christine king Ferris That's Dr. King's sister. David J. Garrow. Robert L. Green. Roberta, oh correction, Robert A. Hill. Darlene Clark Hine. Bernard Lafayette, Junior Otis Moss, Junior Preston N. Williams, Andrew J. Young.